Welcome to Market Meditations, where you are the co-host. I am the co-host. Chris Heidel here with Market Meditations. We should... Uh, <laughs> Are you on fire? I mean, you're near fire, so. I am not on fire, but we have had um, episodic requests for uh, evacuation being prepared. It's created a little bit of anxiety in my family. <laughs> so I'm nervous. Um, I've had some good friends here in the in the foothills of Pasadena who have had to evacuate Arcadia and Sierra Madre and towns next door, but we have not had to um, in Pasadena, Altadena. And now it looks like the fire is moving the opposite direction, sort of northward, which is um, helpful for us, but a, a warning. Yeah, it's always a strange thing. All fire is no good, right? Like of that right. size. Right, 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 right. How are you doing, Neil? Uh, good. We're just, we're smoked in here in, in Bellevue. Um, I think um, in Seattle in general, we... Um, became the second or third most <laughs> uh, second or third worst uh, air quality in the world passing even New Delhi um, which is interesting to think because I thought you know I imagine could air be quality could ever be that yeah I mean you, you've been yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and and somehow I'm in the city you know regularly outside making sure my dog goes to the restroom okay and <laughs> you know Mm-hmm. being affected by the smoke yeah it's um it's been a challenge because th- we've already been under quarantine and now you know one of the great saving graces of living where i do in the foothills and like you do too is the ability to go outside and nature is close by um but uh certainly now it's not uh an evidence we're in the house and i'm actually uh working in the office again so I can get a, a little break, but still. Well, so so this is you know interesting. Um, you know, I we have smoke this year. This is twenty twenty. Today is September seventeenth, twenty twenty. Yeah, it is four thirty two p.m. Pacific. Um, and um, you know we've we've been through a bunch this year. We've been through riots. And we've been through. A, we're still going through a pandemic. We're going through fires um, on the West Coast, as you can tell. Chris and I are roughly in LA and Seattle. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the East Coast has been through hurricanes. Um, and even, you know, where Chris is from in Louisiana. Uh, Chris actually has, has the hurricanes touched um, uh, New Orleans? No, New Orleans was spared. Uh, Thank God. Both, yeah, kind of uh, the first two hurricanes. Um, kind of went uh, e- uh, went west, and then this last one, Sally, went east. So kind of like a Y. There's a fork in the road right at the mouth of the Mississippi, I guess. And those three hurricanes took uh, different turns. But that's been uh, nice for New Orleans, but definitely rough for Lake Charles and you know the um, Port Arthur, Texas, and that kind of border land. And of course, bad for Biloxi and. Jackson, Mississippi, and Pensacola, Florida, that whole panhandle area of the Gulf Coast. So, 
Well, and so I started to write about all the other things that could go wrong <laughs> for the rest of the year in my journal. Do, do you think you're <laughs> so what's the, can we just cut to the chase, Neil, and get to the worst thing that could happen? Is it? Oh, We've already had an alien invasion. I think. The yeah, I don't know. I, I, I probably, as you would say, have a failure of imagination of the worst that could happen. So that's probably a good thing. It's a saving, saving grace. Saving right? grace. Yeah, it's like. Um, but you know, I, I kind of wonder if we're gonna have more riots this year. I would like fully expect us to. Um, I figure we're gonna see at least one more large stock market drop before the end of the year. Um. Probably after Christmas, just because, you know, Christmas somehow saves retail and kind of helps the economy in some ways. Um, that's my my thinking. I'm not that's the your, market your expert projection. here. Okay. Well, yeah, you, know, um, it, you know the old saying about making a pre uh, prediction. You know? Oh, it's going to make a fool out of both of us. I have no idea. Well, right? I actually don't know the thing. But they say if you predict the size... Don't give a date. And if you predict the date, you don't give the. <laughs> so I'm giving the date. I'm not giving the size. Right. You're giving but, the but I expect it to be noticeable. Um, yeah. How's that? Yeah. Um, I kind of expect there to be a fight over the elections, no matter what. Um, I second that. I think that the um, one of the sad facts we're seeing is the all of the discussion around the election is post-election discussion, right? Whether, uh, regardless of who wins, there seems to be um, in train a huge building challenge, you know, um, and it keeps growing. Um, the the battle lines are being drawn is is really the way I see it um, happening, and I hope I am wrong on this, and that uh, there's a landslide and very clear victory <laughs> for one or the other. Um, preferably not the one who's in office now. Right. Yeah, that is absurd. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that it makes it very clear that the challenge is not worth it. I, I wonder if there's not going to be some more um, global conflict. Like, you know, of course, there's always some fight between India and China or India and Pakistan or North Korea and South Korea or... You know, sorry, there's just lots of there's too many things, innumerable things to mention in terms of conflict. But I kind of still wonder if some of the superpowers, uh, you know, not not thinking that there's going to be, you know, like a Cuban Missile Crisis. But I kind of wonder if we're going to see more friction. Um, I, I don't know how much more we can have without a shooting war breaking out. I mean, just on the border with China, you know, China borders 14 countries and they have conflicts with all of them. I mean, most notably what you mentioned with India two nuclear-armed powers, and uh, what is it, 40 Indian soldiers have been killed in this um, border conflict so far. So I expect some of that to intensify near our elections, right? Mm -hmm. so again, I'm just trying to write about all the doomsday scenarios. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kind of think, like, I, I, part of my reason for doing it was if I understood that it could potentially happen, um, then I'd be a lot more at ease when it did and if it affected... Um, commerce. And then all of it kind of led me to this, this uh, funny uh, cartoon I once saw. Um, and it's like, you know, these, these uh, people, this, this tattered Wall Street looking guy sitting around a fire with some younger people. And um, it, it says this, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
the kind of thing I wonder about is, um, and I think it's interesting, is it's probably still going to be business as usual. And I know business runs a lot of the world in lots of ways and um, just made me uh, appreciate the things that are not. So I think maybe we might use that as the uh, prequel to talk about the last couple weeks in the market, um, what it is you're, you're thinking and feeling. And um, um, I think that might be just a good update for this podcast. I'm just glad to have the audience uh, we have and to share what I think um, is happening, though, uh, you know, opinions are like. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got one. <laughs> but I, I have seen, you know, if we look at the, the dynamic moving averages for the market, you know, there have been um, uh, some challenges. The the moving averages are, are going lower now because we've seen some sell-offs. Hey, Chris, you cut out there. Hello? Am I here? Yeah, now I can hear you again. There have been some challenges. (laughs) Yeah, there have been some challenges uh, to the stock market indexes moving higher. They've fallen but recovered. But generally now, when we look at that 50-day moving average, the dynamic moving averages, they're moving lower. Um, And that suggests like a lot of resistance for the markets to move higher. And of course, I mean, we talked a little bit about this in our previous podcast, but the the tremendous options activity, just unsustainable. But it does act a bit like a vacuum pulling prices higher when you see just billions of dollars of call option buying. Um, again, just the fact that that's unsustainable means it must end. And without that kind of um, magnetic pull for prices higher as um, options traders have to hedge, by buying the underlying, um, we we really see um, a dearth of buying pressure for the markets, and I just don't know who's going to step up and fill that void. Um, and already, um, much of the valuations are stretched, so it feels like the risk is asymmetrically to the downside, uh, positioned to the downside versus further upside. So we're. We're, so wait, I, I know you don't short a ton of stock, but is this a moment in time where I, you know, it'd probably be dumb for you to exactly share? Yeah. <laughs> is it somewhere you're at least considering it? Let me change the question. Well, I think certainly we're putting some hedges on, right? Um, you know, if you do own the underlying stock, say Apple, for example, you know, just hedging that uh, with some put options or something um, is probably a wise thing. Now, of course, it's a bit of a drag if on returns if things keep going up. But this is um, this is a time where it does seem to be prudent. <laughs> the prudent man's been murdered a long time ago and run over by the stock market rally, but still, <laughs> maybe he can climb out of his hospital bed and show his face. And um, I think it will take a big sell-off, though, for a lot of the newly uh, minted um, retail traders to receive their baptism of fire. I mean, we've just had a huge growth in, in retail, but this is not just a U.S. problem. Um, you know, I was reading that uh, in U.S. markets, retail trading is uh, about 20% of the total trading volume. Um, and that's much larger than it has been. I think the last five-year average is a little closer to 15% of total trading done on the retail side versus institutional. 
Um, in South Korea, though, it's almost 86% of market activity now. Um, it's doubled in the last year. And that's still a very high percentage of retail traders active in the, in the COPSI exchange. Uh, but, the, but this, again, is also part of parcel of what we see in China. Um, I don't have statistics for much of Europe, but I know the UK has seen also an explosion in retail trading. Um, I just don't know the, um, the breadth of it. But, um, you know, again, we're seeing a sort of speculative fervor, which has uh, blanketed the world like the smoke from these wildfires. And um, that's always, in and of itself, an unsustainable condition. But that, again, following my famous dictum <laughs> about predictions, doesn't tell us when it's going to change, but only that it's baked into the cake, that there will be some sort of market correction as this kind of trading frenzy is unsustainable. Nice to talk. I think the market needs to hear your bell too, Chris. Uh, I think everyone can benefit from it. You know, even in my, I'm meditating a lot on this, both the markets, the wildfires, the civil unrest and COVID itself. And so <laughs> I recognize that uh, within my own body, I'm carrying a lot of the tensions of society. And so the, the practice of meditation has been just tremendously beneficial. I don't know how I would live without it, but just uh, recognizing what's going on within. And, you know, as they say, as above, so below, I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, my wife is certainly feeling, Pilar is feeling the existential threat from the fires. <laughs> I'm able to kind of put that out of my mind while I'm watching the markets. But, um, it's all around us. So it could be um, just the zeitgeist of the era Neil, we're just thinking about apocalyptic visions because they're st we're staring at them daily. <laughs> but uh, it's also possible things uh, work themselves out, right? We do manifest the future. I think we can have a future with more love and understanding, um, but it's going to require that things do indeed change from their current state. Um, so... So, I, I mean, I'm kind of curious what you are thinking about, like, so many different ways to go with the market and the world in general where it's headed. Um, I, what, so what, what's top of mind, you know, as you go into, you're, you're probably thinking about some of your research for next week that you want to do. Um, you're probably thinking about s certain sectors you're going to pay more attention to, just maybe as indicators, maybe as uh, points of interest. Um What's top of mind as you're, you know, sharing again with the, we'll call it 125 families that you, um, that you take care of? Oh, um, it's very straightforward. Um, we're, you know, keeping our hands and feet inside the vehicle. <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> don't make it sound like, I guess it is a roller coaster ride. I was going to say, don't make it sound like a Disneyland ride, but yeah, here we are. We're, uh, really, uh, um, trying to, um, be mindful of the uh, asymmetric risks that are um, really uh, evident in the market and um, to put on some reasonable hedges and protections, downside protection. I think this is um, a very wise 
thing to do at this juncture. Um, again, uh, there are just several uh, factors, the confluence of all these factors, the huge uh, and really in some ways unprecedented level of speculative activity, um, the stretched valuations in large parts of the market. Um, and just really, we continue to see the economy, uh, the real economy deteriorating um, in very large measure from the effects of COVID and the, the quarantines and, and lockdowns. So unemployment continues to rise. Uh, bankruptcies are still rising. Um, we've so far uh, avoided a, a huge credit crisis. And the Fed stepping in to buy corporate bonds, uh, high-yield bonds, has resulted in the largest ever issuance of new debt. I guess that's not... <laughs> it can't be good. <laughs> yeah, no. What goes up or what goes down must come up, whichever, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've seen record issuance, um, and it's not even uh, close. It's by a mile of um, both investment-grade debt, of course, and even high-yield debt. Um, into this, um, you know, into the maw of the Fed's <laughs> purchasing machine. The price-insensitive buyer has shown his face, and we are seeing companies raise uh, cash at a record pace by selling debt. Of course, that leaves the balance sheets in far worse shape, and that means, again, that uh, in a very real way, there is less value Um and the valuations of companies that are trading publicly are more stretched. Um, and this really is something I think about philosophically all the time, Neil. You know, we can, we can multiply um, dollars. We can multiply stocks. Or, you know, we can have a, a four-for-one split or a five-for-one split. But these are simply claims on the existing pool of assets in the economy. Multiplying the claims on these assets doesn't multiply the assets or their productive capacity. It's just um, <laughs> dilutive. But in the short term, we're seeing, you know, uh, of course, until this week and, and the end of last week, Tesla surging, um, Apple surging on the announcement of a sh of a split. Um, this, of course, is uh, not meaningful at all in terms of the actual value of a company splitting the shares but <laughs> unless you're tesla and your your fans all have robin hood it doesn't mean anything that's right 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 or sorry unless you're elon musk if you've got to have that promotional ability you know you've got to have a neural link reveal um <laughs> it's the moment your share price dips you've got to have a new roadshow so it's too bad P.T. Barnum isn't around in these days to see all of the fun that's happening. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think P.T. Barnum got a bad rap. He was probably <laughs> – he had a real show to offer. <laughs> he delivered the, the tiger. You mean you – know? are you trying to say that he wouldn't have sold two cars at once or wouldn't have been two VIN numbers assigned yeah, to yeah. if P.T. Yeah. Barnum was in charge? Where do I begin, right? <laughs> no, don't, can, don't. Right, right. <laughs> But um, yeah, this is uh, well. You know, I'm I'm certainly not um, the first, nor the last, nor alone in recognizing that there is this very strange decoupling of the financial markets from the 
underlying financial economy. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any economies that you feel like, not that you're necessarily doing anything in them, but just we'll just throw out some random countries. Are there any economies you feel really good about? You know, Costa Rica, Bolivia, Um, Myanmar. Um, Colombia. Long-term bullish on India. If they can get COVID under control and not have a, a, a nuclear war with China. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Let me add a, a small little oh, asterisk. A couple of caveats. Uh, <laughs> Hong Kong. Hong Kong equities are very cheap right now. Really? So you, you are bullish on Hong Kong. That's interesting. Well, I wouldn't have figured that. Um, um, from a valuation standpoint, absolutely. Um, well, well, I mean... Have have you invested? I mean, that that's definitely you know assets you have access to on your on your great Bloomberg tournament. Have you invested in any uh, no, companies or debt structures? We're due diligencing some things there though. Now we're looking through those prices are exciting um, in many ways, and certainly you know most of the world. I've never heard you put those two things together. By the way, pricing and exciting yet. Oh gosh, yeah, that's the. Uh, Price is the great equalizer. Oh, I agree. I just and I know it must happen. I just haven't uh, just based on your record, and we've gone through a bunch of things. I just haven't heard you use those words together. So it probably doesn't happen very often. Well, it uh, well it happens usually at extremes. But this is one case where I guess it's an extreme. If you're a Hong Kong resident or you care about democracy in Hong Kong, it would be a tough pill to swallow to say now that the um, CCP and China has uh, extended their dominion over, you know, the goings on and the legal structure of Hong Kong. Will those companies still um, be resilient? And am I in some tacit way supporting the Chinese Communist Party, right? If you buy Chinese equities. um, Maybe, but I might argue you're also helping support the Chinese people. Well, of course, right? There are always uh, two strains. But, you know, I was... um, in China in 1990, just after Tiananmen Square. And one of the things I'll never forget is just the parade of businessmen from the West who were coming back to China. And honestly, um, compared to 1989 before Tiananmen, things were bubbling, there was action and energy, the students were vocal, the people were willing to talk about um, politics in a way that was unprecedented. Um, And there was just this great sense of optimism um, that the economy was opening up. And, you know, we had the Beijing Jeep factory there was operating at a wonderful capacity. Volvo was selling cars into China. It just seemed like they were on the cusp of something big and then it was all squashed. And it didn't take very long for businessmen to come back and to engage with the butchers of Beijing. (laughs) <laughs> which is oh, you heard those those stories about Myanmar, right? They open it up, and suddenly, like every hotel room is booked, right? right? And it's all investment right. bankers. Right. We can we can sell them I'll freeway. We can sell them infrastructure. So you they know, must I'm, westernize tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 definitely sympathetic and open to the argument that engagement is better than you know just ignoring them. Like we can see what's happened with Cuba all these years. It suffered tremendously from being repudiated uh, and being, being, you know, uh, persona non gratis as far as trading is concerned. Or Haiti, um, the Republic of Haiti, um, (laughs) for 200 years uh, being, you know, shunned. 
by the trading world. Um, so I think there's a, there's a strong argument for engagement. But I just wish that some of these businessmen had weaker stomachs, you know, um, when you see that sort of those sort of sorts of humanitarian abuses. I think business has power to change things. Um, and that could have been and should have been part of the demands. And again, we're going to see this, you know, as Hong Kong um, picks back up again. I mean, part of my thinking about these Hong Kong companies, which are very inexpensive, is it's an echo of, uh, in some ways, of Tiananmen. And um, business will go on as usual, um, for better, I hope, but sometimes for worse. So again, this is something we're evaluating. But to your point, just globally, I think most economies, most of the markets are much less richly priced than the U.S. We're in some uncharted territory, certainly with a lot of tech and SaaS companies. You and I talked about how a large percentage of the portfolio you manage um, is likely to be in um, private companies in over the next decade. Um, what percentage is it today, and what percentage do you think it's going to get to, let's say, a decade from now, which you know is terrible even to predict on yourself? And then, maybe more importantly, uh, is that because of some of the you know market conditions that you? expect to stay extreme in the United States for public markets? Hmm. Oh, wow. There are a lot of ways to approach that question, Neil. It's, uh, well, it's like three or four parts at least, right? right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to, take a stab. Help me unpack. I, I, you know, I've been trying to think as I was looking at, you know, all of the issues I could come up with, I was thinking like, you know, somewhere else in some other country, somebody's got it even worse, right? Um, and they're thinking through other issues. And that, that makes it really interesting to be a global investor sitting in your shoes. And so, you know, some, some of the prep I was doing for the call today or for the yeah. podcast today. Well, right now it's less than 10% of the assets we manage that are in privately held concerns. It um, probably will grow for a couple of reasons. You know, what you're aware of and many of our listeners are probably aware of is just the, the um, ecosystem supporting private companies is much larger and uh, more robust, and companies are choosing to stay private longer. So initial public offerings are down and probably will remain that way. Um, and we're also seeing through mergers and acquisitions and companies being taken private, and the growth of private equity is certainly part of that too, um, the number of publicly traded stocks um, in the U.S. is about half of what it was 15 years ago. I think the Wilshire 5000 index now only has 3,546 companies or so um, in the index. So it's the Wilshire 3456, not the <laughs> But that, you know, we had over um, or close to 8,000 publicly traded companies uh, in the U.S. Um, back in 2006. And um even at the time of the dot-com era, of course, companies were rushing to go public with only about a three-year to three-and-a-half-year incubation period. Now, I think the average is between 10 and 12 years. I've seen the numbers anywhere in those ranges, but they're all in those low double digits for the average age of a company coming public. Um, so that's one part of it. It's natural, I think, to find opportunity then in the space where companies are remaining private longer, um, where they theoretically can um, incubate and grow stronger for longer before they tap the public markets. But 
it's also true that the public markets give most companies the lowest cost of capital, right? Uh, right. And as much as... Just that companies don't love socks, as a for instance, or expectations that can change daily, or market, you know, or their stock being um, decided by quant trading systems. Correct. Correct. You, you give up certainly some control. And of course, you have the regulatory environment, which is not appealing either, from Dodd-Frank to Sarbanes-Oxley to just all the disclosures you must make. And... Um, Human nature, and certainly in the markets, it's very short-term focused. It's uh, harder for a publicly traded company to really um, steer a long-term vision than it is if you're just privately held and you've got no one to be accountable to but your own uh, long-term view of value uh, and your board of directors. <laughs> Makes S- supposedly. Supposedly. <laughs> I always think of Theranos when uh, somebody says, like, the, the board's going to be, you know, do oh, something God. to make sure you're moving forward. And I'm it's like, really? Great example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there are a lot of them like that. A lot of boards like that. Um, but the, the other side of it, too, is um, can we have some kind of meaningful reform in the initial public offerings market, right? We saw Snowflake this week, which, you know, surged. Um, just it doubled uh, from its uh, offering uh, very rapidly at one hundred and twenty dollars a share. Uh, well, then, it had it had Warren Buffett, you know, investing. So I mean, that, well, now there's that was going to help the surge price. Remind me to come back to that because I methinks that wasn't Buffett, but probably Todd Combs, his uh, deputy, um, who made the investment, and it seems a very un-Buffett-like thing because they. Uh, along with Salesforce and Mark Benioff, agreed to take um, a certain portion of the initial public offering. And they didn't sign an NDA or anything. And the wise people at Snowflake used that to market the IPO, saying we have Buffett, basically, and we have Salesforce as early investors. And don't you want a piece of this? And as a result, they raised the IPO price from 80 to 100. I can't blame them. To 120. <laughs> and it went off and it got up to like 365 or something in the trading day. It's, um, it's uh, I, I say I can't blame them either, but I'm sure Buffett couldn't be happy about that. If he had agreed to invest, I can't remember the amount, you know, 254 million or 256 million um, in, uh, we have to fact check that one <laughs> in, in uh, Snowflake's initial public offering at $80. You're getting a lot less at 120, right? Um, and that's a, I don't know. If- right. But it may not be a buy and hold for him this time. Right. Well, that's got, possible. Right. But that's I, no, he's got no requirement to hold, even though that's what he typically does. But you don't think in the IPO that if he's the, if he's a considered a founding investor, he's got a, a He's not a founding investor. He didn't invest early in the company. He's investing at their IPO. So I don't, you know, you know, I, I I think he'll make, uh, whether, whether it was something that was very Buffett-esque or not of the past, Mm -hmm. I, I suspect Warren Buffett will make a profit off of this either way. I, I suspect so too. (laughs) You know, but you know, it's so funny to read the Snowflake prospectus and they said their total addressable market 
is, you know, 83 billion or something like that. Um, and certainly that market. Oh, is that it? Yeah, that's what they I, You know, when, when I did the bottoms up approach, I only came to like 78. But what's five million, five billion between friends? Right. Well, in terms of percentages, you were very close. And if they have an $83 billion addressable market um, at yesterday's close before today's um, further selling, the shares price the company at 66 billion. So this company is about 86% of its, in terms of its uh, market capitalization, its value, um, it's priced at 86% of its total addressable market. Phenomenal. Yikes. <laughs> I mean, like, they love to be the founder of that company. Right. Sounds, doesn't sound cheap to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, he, he's um, maybe using this to redefine value investor as a play. Maybe. Maybe. Well, certainly the, the younger lieutenants are changing some of the investment paradigm at Berkshire, right? Well, and well, they should, right? Because they, they will inevitably take over uh, due to retirement or death, right? So it makes sense. Yeah. Um. Are there any other kind of things that you think lead to you going to more private companies and paying more attention to the, the private markets that you didn't get a chance to, to at least touch on that um, are obvious? I mean, I don't expect you to be like Ray Mazuka and give me, you know, uh, a 40, <laughs> a list of 40 different considerations <laughs> off the top of your head. Cloud guy is impressive. Um, but I wonder if there, you know, there are any other major themes that, that, uh, you can think through out loud that you don't have to go look on your checklist for like me when I make an investment. Yeah, I, um, no, I, th- I think that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm just, uh, learning to incorporate that whole space into my regular, um, research, because I think that's where, you know, most of the uh, future opportunities are going to come. So it, it's interesting, you know, I, I had a, conversation with Roger Kumar about this, um, you know, for, for our guests to remind you, Roger was one of the first 50 hedge fund managers in the country. He's a good friend of, of, um, both of ours now. And he was saying that one of the things he was thinking was, you know, the public markets are also just going to continue to be, are going to continue to move up in price. And, you know, we'll call it main street. America will be, uh, priced out of being able to buy companies like Microsoft, um, just because they'll continue to go up in price, and um, you know there'll be a squeeze, con- you know, on on the currency at the same time, and so alternatives will be where the world looks. Is that something you subscribe to as as a consideration factor you're thinking about? Um, well, it's already uh, somewhat of a consideration factor. You know the. The markets, and when we say that, I, I want to be very specific. I mean, especially the major indices, the indexes like the S and P five hundred, the Nasdaq, and the Dow, have become political utilities. So there's a, a huge um, political impetus to keep those indexes high and rising, and not to let them fall, and a tremendous amount of um, energy political energy um, and financial capital are put to use that way. It does suggest that these valuations can remain quite stretched and even float higher, but it's not 
it's like a Potemkin village. It doesn't reflect the reality of, of the economy um, and even the underlying economics of the, the companies. Like, you know, Apple has doubled their ASP since 2016 and revenues are flat. And they're, in some ways, I think, desperately trying to find an answer, you know, squeezing the app developers for 30% to be on their app store platform, um, getting into the financial services industry, and uh, issuing a card and, you know, trying to make uh, royalties through the payment system. Um, Sorry, remind me ASP. Uh, average Sorry. selling price. Okay. Yeah. Their average selling price on the, the iPhone has doubled and yet revenues are flat, profits are flat. Um, that hasn't hindered the stock price. It hasn't gotten in the way of Apple's uh, valuation, you know, growing to over $2.2 trillion, um, at one point. So it's it's been uh, a remarkable run for the shares, and that sort of supports what Roger's talking about, that these, uh, you know, regardless of the underlying economics, the, the share prices continue to expand, expand, expand to the moon. Um, it also supports what I was saying earlier that, you know, what we're really doing with a four for one stock split for Apple is multiplying the number of claims on what's really a stagnant asset pie. <laughs> stagnant is probably not the word, but it's not growing. Um, and so we're, we've got more and more claims on an existing pool of assets. Not- and yet the price will continue to go up because it's now split. Yeah. 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 So um, I can certainly see his vision. Uh, and it's certainly evident. And if we just look with open eyes at the market today, can it really sustain itself this way? Oh, the Potemkin village and Mao Zedong's rice fields and all of the other um, props <laughs> that were meant to fool the public eventually crashed and came down uh, and were revealed as uh, fakes. Though it's amazing what people are choosing to believe in this world, you know, I, I'm very um, humbled, I guess, <laughs> by the lengths people will go to to insulate themselves from the truth. And that's all of us. I mean, me, um, you, I'm always questioning, am I wrong? Am I wrong? What am I missing? But it seems like a lot of my fellow Americans, especially, are willing to believe what they want to believe. (laughs) It became easier in the Trump era. Let's just be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. If you say it loud enough and enough times, it's more likely to happen, Chris. Come on. Yeah. Well, and um, again, we've we've seen it. It it seemed like just a fringe group of people, you know, who were believers in QAnon and all these sort of strange um, and sort of extreme theories, uh, conspiratorial theories. And I'm not um, one who is against conspiracy theories. I don't want to. Um, so you're for them. Got it. Well, you, you uh, to say I'm against them <laughs> is, is to believe that wealthy and powerful people never coordinate their efforts, right? <laughs> right <laughs> or trying right, to protect their, their advantage. I think that that is a silly idea. And so, yes, there are people who act conspiratorially 
to protect their incumbency and their advantage. Absolutely, they do. Um, and so, yeah, if it, 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 there could be a theory that involves a conspiracy and it can be proven. But some of this is so extreme and so magical in its thinking. And, um, you know, again, we all have our superstitions, but some of it's just so extreme as to boggle the mind that anyone could really connect all of these dots and make this seem to make this feel reasonable even or believable. So um, I guess anything's possible. People can continue to believe that the economy is okay because the S&P reached a new high, but uh, life on the ground seems to show, tell us a different story, far different from what the index averages are telling us. Well, that may be a somber note. I think we should put a pin in it right there. Mm-hmm. Let's just say, uh, you want to say thanks to everybody for joining us? I do. I want to say <laughs> thanks to everyone who took the time to join us today and to listen to this broadcast and to this podcast. And uh, we're very thankful for you. We couldn't be what we, we couldn't do what we're doing without you. We could not do what we're doing without you. <laughs> and uh, without your comments and questions. So please feel free to send those to us. And five-star ratings, of course, and, please. Yes. <laughs> Neil, always the pragmatist. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you, everyone. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi and Chris Heidel and podcast guests reflect solely their own opinions and do not reflect the investments of Zoa Capital or Heidel, Beal, and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.